It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've got no seats. I'll let her put the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, but it's just a gang. The government for hire in the combat site. Like it wasn't coming in a hurry, but the jury's beating down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. In the dark heart of the jungle, a mysterious figure... Known as Nurse Amy. That's right. Yeah, what? I'm doing it. I'm doing it here. This is the hour of doom. Doom, 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 doom. That's right. I can't breathe. <laughs> the hour of doom. And Bloom. Don't forget and Bloom, right? That's right. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an hour of honor in an onerous world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, podcasts, all sorts of stuff on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right. And together we are the gang of two, the dynamic duo, the prodigious pair. Oh my gosh, we are just incredible, aren't we? And we're <laughs> here. You gotta stop making me laugh. I just sound, sound like a giggle bot. <laughs> well, we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Which it sounds like it is. It is. It has fallen apart. <laughs> oh my gosh. In the past. I don't need any more future. family members with medical issues. Nothing serious, folks. But my gosh. You know, sometimes when it rains, it pours. It pours, it really does. And you just have to really appreciate your health. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And hopefully you'll talk maybe a little bit about that today with regards to how to keep healthy. I know. Have you written? I I am. We're going to talk about healthy diet and supplements that you may or may not be taking. Uh Or maybe you should be taking. Or or maybe not. Have you written about cataracts? Uh, no, At but all? I've I've written about uh, Rinkins. <laughs> Doesn't Rinkin make cataracts? <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, my dad had a couple cataract surgeries. One last Friday and one this Friday. Well, it's amazing what they can do these days with today's technology. I'll tell you, we, we usually talk about not an era of high technology right. about what you do if you don't have that available. But boy, when you have it, it is a miracle of modern medicine. And that's what you have mentioned in prior previous shows is that if you have an issue to get it taken care of now, right? he said the surgery that was done last Friday, by the way, for anyone who may have to have cataract surgery in the future, he had the laser 
procedure, which there's one where they the surgeon uses the knife, the scalpel, right? Or there's one where they can actually do a laser process, and he had to pay the extra to get the laser because he wanted that one done. He said it was pain free, okay. the one last Friday, and he has about eighty to ninety percent of his great vision back. A key is to keep the drops in the eyes. Right. They did a lot. They used several different drops. But if his eye dries out a little bit, uh, it, it decreases be. the vision a little bit. So, I believe it. And then he had the second one done this morning, and he said it's a little bit of pain. So he took a pain medicine, which my dad never takes pain medicine. I think that's why he was repeating himself. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it is a tough time. As you get older, you know, things do happen. I mean, they are moving parts. And they are things that indeed do wear out over time. So I guess we're just lucky that they have an ability to restore at least part of his vision. Oh, it's a miracle. It really is. It and is. I'm sure people who have had the surgery have said the same thing. I just don't know anybody personally who've told me they've had the surgery. Did you, Your mom never had a problem with that. No. Nope. Well, about, she was in her late aunts? 70s. My aunts. Uh, uh, I don't I know. know I don't know of their having that. No. I would so say this not. is our first cataract experience, but now I don't fear it as much if I have to have it because I know somebody who actually went gave through me it. feedback mm-hmm. right, and I feel right. more comfortable. So this is why I'm sharing it with you guys is that he said it's not so bad and he's really happy to have so much vision back. That's right. Once yeah. you don't, once you don't have your vision, boy, I'll tell you, 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 you know that you really, when you get it back right. I, and I think the problem with some of these issues like cataracts is it comes so slowly you don't realize how bad your vision actually is until it's restored that's true i mean i don't know that i don't have a cataract right now right because it, it happens so slowly but i seem to have but that's why you got to have yearly eye exams that's right i recommend everyone have yearly and we used to have yearly we also used to go get our teeth cleaned twice a year that's yes. a lot of teeth cleaning. And now i don't have any teeth <laughs> And now my because they ground down uh, to nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they cleaned them. You had an over cleaner. That's what happens when you you graze on the grass too much. <laughs> Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a maniacal mongoose? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Doctor Bones and Ursamey and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Doctor Bones and Ursamey's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract nor provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Um, That's all well and good for normal times, but what happens in a disaster when the hospital isn't open and the zombies don't even cover their mouths when they cough? Oh, gross. My goodness. Those zombies. We have to teach them manners. That's right. Somebody's got to be the end of the line when it comes to keeping their people healthy in times of trouble. And you know what? That someone might just be you out there. So show the world you got more sense than a bowl of soup (laughs) and get some training and knowledge. And while you're at it, how about some supplies and quality medical kits to go along with all that? And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. And they're designed by an old country doctor, that's me, and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits 
for contents, quality, cost with anybody else's stuff. And you'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account, too. So read our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. See what people have to say that actually have dealt with us and have our products in their hot little hands. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us. So why not connect with the old and the beautiful? Is that Wasn't that a soap opera? The old and the beautiful? The old and the beautiful? No. No? All right. Well. <laughs> It should have been. The old and the beautiful. That's well, the problem would be who would want to be labeled the old? I if want to be If you're on a show it. that's called the old and the beautiful. beautiful. I'll be the old. I'll be the old guy. I don't mind. You have no problem with that. I know. I, I want mean, you to get really, really old, though. You have to stick around. So I actually have to get really you old. You have to be around for a really long time. Well, I hope so. You're not allowed to leave. At uh, least, like, 120. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, then I'll be ready. I think I think I will be ready by then. <laughs> I probably won't recognize won't recognize this country, that's for sure. Hey <laughs> give our leash a yank, Frank. Frank. <laughs> by contacting us at drbonespodcast at AOL.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine DR Bones and Nurse Amy. You can also check out our Facebook page, Doom and Bloom, and you can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel. Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. That's right, and don't forget our other podcasts, all about current events. American Survival Radio now broadcasts from a number of great radio stations, land-based radio stations throughout the U.S. of A. And this show, the Survival Medicine Hour, broadcasts from KYAH Radio in Utah, and we appreciate their patronage and support. You know, last week we talked about bear encounters. There were a few points I couldn't get to because of lack of time. So a quick recap here. According to the National Park Service, there's no single strategy that works at all bear encounter situations that guarantees your safety. But there are ways you can assess the situation, maybe get yourself out of danger. Of course, situational awareness, number one. Don't just look down the trail. Look all around you and farther away, not just near. Watch for disturbed trash, fresh tracks, bear droppings, and of course, Actual bears is probably a good idea. When you encounter a bear, it hopefully will be at a distance and keep that distance. Avoid surprising it if you want an up-close view. For God's sake, take binoculars. Yeah, great idea, darling. That's right. If the bear doesn't see you, keep out of sight and go slowly behind, downwind of the bear if you can. If the bear does see you, slowly retreat the way you came. This also says, the Bear Park Service actually says, to go sideways. And that's great, but... You know, because maybe there'd be less chance of tripping and falling. That's interesting. But the truth of the matter is, how far sideways can you go on a trail? I mean, we talk about... You're going to end up in the woods. Right. We talk about Hmm. uh, hiking the entire width of the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, right. (laughs) But so maybe there is a point to it. If you think about it, a trail is sort of a clear path straight to your body. If you move sideways, there's going to be more obstacles between you and the bear because now you're going to be in the woods there's going to be trees so instead of the bear making a beeline straight for you he's going to have to go around bushes or trees right so we can at least one so the bear will be chasing us for hours around and around the tree all around the the tree tree. (laughs) the oak tree the The bear bear. chased the altons (laughs) (laughs) all right i didn't mean to set you up for that but (laughs) you did but you did (laughs) i did but you did. did um Yes. Basic advice here. Let's see. Uh, hike in groups whenever possible. 
90% of people injured by bears in Yellowstone, for example, uh, are, were alone or had only one hiking partner. I would guess that this is because uh, I guess a big mass of people appears larger and probably has weirder smells than a single person. It might be intimidating to a bear. Avoid hiking at dawn, dusk, or at night. These are times that bears are out in the warm weather months. You're just as likely, remember, to come upon a bear as it is to come upon you. In our Gatlinburg, Tennessee neighborhood uh, in the fall, we usually see them very early or very late. Yes, in the that's In true. the afternoon, let's say, or early evening. Never approach, crowd, pursue, or displace bears. Wow, do I see people break that rule so many times. We see so many people stop their car, get out, approach bears in the Smoky Mountains National Park. And, of course, this is a mistake. I mean, actually, it's not only a mistake. It's against the law. It's a violation if you're in a national park, for example. Uh, Yellowstone requires visitors to keep a distance of at least 100 yards. That's 300 feet from a bear in Shenandoah National Park in Virginia, 200 feet. I don't know what... uh, the Smoky Mountains does, but I, I see people get closer than 50 feet to a bear, and that is a big mistake. Now, once a bear has noticed you, is paying, paying attention to you, additional strategies can help prevent the situation from escalating. The Park Service has to identify yourself by talking calmly to the bear, so the bear knows you're a human and not a prey animal. That, I wonder whether that's better than yelling at the bear that they say to remain still stand your ground but slowly wave your arms i mean basically give it the idea that you're a human i guess these guys haven't uh, these bears know a human when they see it and uh, who knows might come closer stand on its hind legs to get a better look or smell that's more of a curious posture not a threatening posture but if the bear starts to follow you quietly with its ears erect and its attention clearly directed at you well you know what? It may not be acting in a defensive mode. It might be in predatory mode, and you're in trouble. Stay calm. Remember, most bears don't want to attack you. They just want to be left alone. They may bluff their way out of an encounter by charging and then turning away at the last second. Wow, I hope it never gets to that. I know, right? Bears also react defensively by yup, doing all sorts of growling, snapping your jaws, woofing and yawning and all sorts of stuff. When they lay their ears back, well, you have to be a little careful there because then they may be ready to charge according to the park service they say to continue to talk to the bear in low tones i don't know if that's going to help it certainly wouldn't be threatening to the bear but i don't know that you don't want the bear to at least be a little intimidated by you they do say not to scream or make sudden movement of course that may trigger an attack i mean you know dogs if you run away from a dog oftentimes it will chase you so this is something that I guess makes makes some sense, but it's hard to really say. Now I I don't know what a convoy is going to do to deter an angry bear, a hungry bear rather. But I do agree with this this part. They say never to imitate bear sounds. Let's face it, you're unlikely to impress them. They can make better bear sounds than you can, and definitely don't make a high pitched squeal. So if you're high strung, don't squeal. Whatever you do, it makes you look weak. Now, don't be between the bear and a way for it to get out of there. Always leave the bear an escape route. If you've got small kids, pick them up immediately. Make yourself look as large as possible by moving to higher ground, if, it, if that's a possibility. Uh, don't allow the bear access to your food. Getting your food will only encourage the bear and make the problem worse for others. Of course, if you were the only person in the world and the bear would go after your food and leave you alone, well, you know, I might consider leaving food for the bear but in general it's a bad (laughs) bad idea for the people that come after you for you to feed bears please do not do not do that 
Uh, don't drop your pack. It provides protection to your back and help, helps uh, prevent a bear from accessing your food. And that's what you need to do. If the bear is stationary, you want to move away slowly. You do not want to run it. But if the bear follows, but if the bear follows, stop and hold your ground. If it's a black bear, at least, and they're that interested in you, well, the bears, uh, the bear, the folks at bearsmart.com say to act aggressively, look it straight in the eyes, let it know you're going to fight if attacked, shout, make yourself look as big as possible. That's what they say. Stamp your feet and make a step or two even towards the bear. Threaten the bear with whatever's handy. The more the bear persists, the more aggressive, they say, your response should be. Remember, you can't outrun a bear. They will chase you if you do. Don't climb a tree unless you're a squirrel. Let's face it, you're not 10 years old anymore. It takes longer than you think. Your pursuer is actually a pretty good climber. So use your bear spray and fight for your life. We're going to talk about bear, bear spray in a second. Kick, punch, hit the bear in the face, eyes, nose, whatever with whatever you have. Now, if you see a female with cubs, never place yourself between a mother and the babies. Never try to approach them. There's another big mistake I see people make in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And all I have to say is that if all else fails and they attack you, there are actually different actions that you should do for brown bears or grizzly bears and black bears. For brown bears and grizzly bears, if you're attacked by a brown bear, leave your pack on. Play dead, they say. Lay flat on your stomach with your hands clasped behind your neck and your backpack between you and the bear. Some say to spread spread your legs to make it harder for the bear to turn you over. Others say to go into a fetal position. Remain still until the bear leaves the area. Fighting back usually increases the intensity of such attacks. However, if the attack persists, fight back vigorously and use whatever you have at hand to hit the bear in the face. Because face it, you are in big trouble. For black bears, if you are attacked by a black bear, do not play dead. Don't play dead for a black bear. Try to get to a secure place like a car or a building, but if escape's not possible, try to fight back using any object available. Concentrate your kicks and blows again on the bear's face. If any species of bear actually goes into your tent or stalks you and then attacks, do not play dead. doesn't matter to the species. Fight back. This kind of attack is pretty rare, but it can be serious because it often means the bear is looking for food and sees you as, guess what, food. If you've survived the bear attack, you probably have, you're probably going to have bite marks and claw marks, claw injuries, and maybe bleeding. Make sure your backpack has a good medical kit. I know where you can get one. Go to store.doomandbloom.net. Now, what about bear spray? Notice I don't call it bear repellent because it's not something you spray on your skin. It's going to have bears leave you alone. <laughs> bear spray is a non-lethal deterrent designed to stop aggressive behavior in bears. I guess similar to how you stop aggressive behavior in human rioters, for example, then that is about that. It uses a fine spray of capsicum, uh, pepper derivatives, to temporarily reduce the bear's ability to see and smell and breathe and uh, giving you just enough time to leave the area. Now, here's some tips for you. So always have it easily accessible. Do not put it in the bottom of your backpack. It's going to take way too long to get it out and use it. It's important to keep bear spray in a Quick draw host holster if you possibly can on your belt so you can use it fast. Get Have the ability to get to it ASAP. You don't have to be a good shot with bear spray, but just put up a cloud of dust between you and the charging bear. Uh, Yellowstone Rangers say start at about 10 or 20 yards or so. Still, it's most effective at close range, let's say 5 to 15 feet, further away and wind and other factors may prevent a good dose being given to the bear of course too close and the bear is going to be on you before it's incapacitated by the spray so 
It's a bit of a dilemma, I guess, with regards to that. It might seem a little elementary to you, but the rangers at Yellowstone National Park says you should practice, practice, practice using an inert can of bear spray to, and practice removing it from your holster, removing the safety tab with your thumb and firing, practicing with inert bear spray with the wind at your back into a headwind, into a crosswind, so you can understand how bear spray is actually affected by the wind. The, if the wind is coming right at you, you might actually get a, get the, as much bear spray in your face oh, as the bear gets. no, that's or terrible. More. No bear spray, by the way, is 100% effective. But if And by the way, if you store it improperly, it can become actually sort of dangerous. Bear spray actually can explode if it reaches 120 degrees Fahrenheit, so don't store it in the glove box of the car nor any heat sources. If your bear spray expires, remember, it might not be as potent as you may need it to be. I've heard of some alternatives, but I can't remember what it was that they said to spray instead of, quote, bear spray. Well... I forget what else it was. Shark repellent? No, I don't know. <laughs> Here's what I you do. I have to look it up. I thought maybe it would stimulate your memory, honey. Are you kidding? I don't have two brain cells that... Yes, you do. That are... They're barely holding on to each other. That's really All right, well, I'm looking at bear spray alternatives, All right, so we'll, we'll figure it out. In any case... If you have bear spray... Wasp spray! That's it! Oh, great. If a bear charges you, remove the safety clip, aim slightly down, adjust for any crosswind, begin spraying when the charging bear is about 30 to 60 feet away, remember 10 to 20 yards, keep spraying at the charging bear so the bear has to pass through a cloud of the spray. Keep spraying until the bear changes direction, and if the bear continues to charge, just spray it full on into its face as much as you possibly can, then... Hit the road, Jack. Get the heck out of there. Park rangers say don't depend on personal defense products to stop a charging bear. If by that they mean a knife, they're probably right. If you're armed with a firearm and you've trained as a sniper in the Army, well, that's up to you, Marksman Matt. I'll tell you, it's legal to have guns in most national parks, but it does depend on the state, so just be aware of the rules. You might be surprised to know that a greater percentage of attacks from black bears are predatory in nature than from brown bears, but young brown bears or grizzlies can be predatory once their moms abandon them because they're learning to find food alone and may be tempting to see you as food. You also may wonder why I keep saying brown bears or grizzlies. Technically, they are the same species or maybe subspecies. Uh, brown bears are called Kodiak bears in Alaska. They have a tendency to be bigger, but otherwise the only difference is really geographical. Now, I just wanted to say... There are some ways you can identify whether the bear is reacting either in a defensive or predatory way. A black bear defensive attack, a bear that is defending itself, a black bear will tend to swat at you and try to bite. However, it's less likely to target your head or neck, uh, going for the kill, in other words. Uh, but a predatory attack, well, they'll that bear is actively stalking you. It's going to go for the nape, the back of your neck, the top of your head. It was not going to be deterred from continuing to attack you. Now, if a brown bear or grizzly bear has uh, is doing a defensive attack, the bear may make a series of bluff charges to test your threat. But look at the ears. The more the ears slope backwards, the more the bear means business. Other indicators of an imminent attack include hair rising at the back of the bear's neck and uh, a lot of growling. If it does attack you, it will bite the top of your head, back of your neck, try to smash your spinal cord with a swing of its paw, it could actually do that amazingly. And that's just a defensive attack. A predatory attack, you have the same indicators as the defensive, plus a lot more aggression, often shown in the form of swinging its head from side to side and clacking its teeth, 
while opening and closing its mouth. Wow. And I haven't even mentioned polar bears. I would think the same rules would apply as with the black, black brown bear. But boy, oh boy, I'm not actually very sure. Remember that whatever the reason behind a bear's attack, any species of bear in your camp or worse in your tent represents predatory behavior. You need not to not act like prey. Fight back with everything you have. And, by, and one last thing, studies show that bears that are accustomed to humans never live as long a life as truly wild bears. Aww. Bears lose their fear of people by being fed by them. As a result, many of these are hit by cars or end up euthanized. When they euthanize a mother bear, they euthanize the cubs also. I remember at least two or three circumstances around our area where a bear attacked a dog or something like that, a mother bear. Uh, or they were getting into the garbage. Remember? Or getting the into the garbage, the right. Mountain, right. And they shot the mother and they shot every single one of the three, two or three cubs that each one of those mothers had. So sad. So remember this, a bear that's fed is a bear that is dead. I wanted to talk a little bit about antibiotics. Um, I have to tell you that the human body is just a, a marvel of biological engineering and it has an immune system that kills bacteria and other harmful germs before they can multiply and cause symptoms. And our blood contains leukocytes, things that are called white cells as well, and they attack bacteria. Even if we experience symptoms, our bodies can usually cope and fight off an infection. It's thought that this process of suffering an infection and eliminating it with our immune response, it's thought that it happens every day, usually without any real obvious sign. There are occasions, however, when the body's defenses are overwhelmed. In these cases, help is needed and it comes in the form of antibiotics. The word antibiotics is derived from the Greek anti, that means against, and bios means life. Well, this seems a sort of a strange foundation for a term in medicine that saves lives. The meaning of antibiotics is simply that the drug is against the life of the, not you, but the disease-causing organism. Antibiotics are powerful medicines. They are super powerful that fight certain infections, can even stop epidemics in their tracks when they're used properly. Each medication eliminates bacterial populations in all sorts of different ways, ranging from outright destruction to the inhibition of a germ's ability to either re reproduce itself or repair itself. Although ancient cultures were unaware uh, of the microscopic germs that cause infections, many developed and used treatments to deal with the sicknesses that were caused by them. In some cases, they utilized the actual raw materials that eventually became the basis for modern antibiotics like penicillin. The earliest known evidence of antibiotics has been found in chemical analysis of the bones of ancient Nubians. Nubians uh, were a civilization that lived in what is now Sudan, that's south of Egypt, about 2,000 years ago. Now, studies on the remains of these people suggested that they ingested the antibiotic tetracycline on a regular basis. Now, how the heck is that possible? I mean, finding, finding an antibiotic like tetracycline, I mean, a drug that was first introduced after World War II in relics that old, I mean, that's tantamount to finding a Neanderthal skeleton holding a cell phone. Now, after some understandable skepticism on the part of the scientific community, it was proposed that the Nubians accidentally produced the tetracycline when they made, guess what, beer. 
The antibiotic is produced by a bacterium in the soil that grows well in hot, dry areas such as Egypt and Sudan, and likely it contaminated the beard during the fermentation process. Now, to test this theory, graduate students actually experimented with making that beard that way, and sure enough, it actually had tetracycline in it. It didn't look much like beer, though. It actually looked like porridge. I guess that what they did is they drained off the, the liquid. That became the beer, and they probably ate the, the granola-looking kind of stuff that was left behind. The result of the an- accidental intake of these antibiotics was that remains of these ancient Nubians didn't really seem to show much evidence of infection. And there are a lot of bone infections and things like that, and you can actually see evidence of infections. And there are actually reports of Egyptian skeletons from the same era that also seem to contain similar evidence of tetracycline in their bones and were relatively free of disease. Pretty amazing. Now, fast forward to modern times. Now, the first officially recognized antibiotic that was discovered for the cure of infection actually may be a matter for discussion. The answer may lie in, of all things, blue cheese. The Chinese and Indian cultures use molds in the cures of disease but they had little idea of how they worked. But in 1874, a physician named William Roberts noted that a mold called Penicillium glaucum, utilized in the making of blue cheese, no less, seemed to prevent the growth of bacteria in lab dishes. Sometime later, the famous scientist Louis Pasteur showed similar results with anthrax bacteria by using a related penicillium mold. While the discussion of the connection between molds and bacterial inhibition was important, it actually didn't result, however, in a product that could be released to the general public. Meanwhile, there was a German scientist named Paul Ehrlich, and he was experimenting with dyes, D-Y-E, dyes, in the 1880s, and he proposed it was possible to make chemicals from the dyes that would kill bacteria without harming the human body. Well, on his 606th attempt in 1907, sure enough, he discovered the first synthetic antibacterial agent, an arsenic compound now known as arsphenamine. And it was used as early as 1910 to treat, guess what, the sexually transmitted disease known as syphilis. It wasn't until 1927 that Scottish physician and microbiologist Alexander Fleming discovered a usable antibiotic for molds. And amazingly, it was completely by accident. It seems that Dr. Fleming's laboratory was pretty untidy. He was just not a neat freak, and uh, although that is probably a good quality to have if you're going to be running a laboratory, he did not have that quality. In August of 1927, he left a number of bacterial specimens out when he took a family vacation, and he returned the following month, no less. He noticed at that time when he came back that one of his dishes that had these bacteria cultures had developed a fungus and strangely the bacterial colonies that surrounding that surrounded the fungus were destroyed so wherever there was fungus there was no bacteria and wherever there was no fungus there was plenty of bacteria growing probably more than we would be comfortable knowing about in this day and age uh, Dr. Fleming identified the fungus as being from, from the penicillium family, as had been previously discovered by Drs. Roberts and Dr. Pasteur, and he called his discovery mold juice until it was actually, it would not name penicillin until the year 1929. Now, there was a lot of investigation on penicillin's effect on bacteria, and, and it revealed that it did inhibit various types, including the germs that cause things like scarlet fever, diphtheria, meningitis, and certain pneumonias. But despite this, 
Fleming himself couldn't find a way to mass-produce his new discovery. That was left to other doctors, Dr. Howard Florey and Dr. Ernst uh, Boris Chain in Oxford, England. They did further research with financial aid from the U.S. and Great Britain, and another researcher, Dr. Howard Heatley, boy, this is a team effort, huh, made a breakthrough in finally purifying the final product that Drs. Florey and Chain were able to produce. And by purifying it and making it more mass-producible, they did indeed start making it in large quantities after, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in late 1941. By mid-1944, enough penicillin had been produced to treat all the wounded in the armed forces of the Allies for the entire war. Now, from these crude beginnings, there were a lot of penicillin-related antibiotics that were developed, and they're widely used today to treat a variety of infections. Now, you might think penicillin was therefore the first drug to achieve a wide market appeal, but it was actually preceded by another popular family of drugs called sulfonamides, or sulfa drugs. Indeed, sulfa drugs have been called the first miracle drug, and they deserve credit for saving tens of thousands of lives from wound infections during World War II. Matter of fact, it was so widely used that many soldiers' first aid kits often came with the drug in pill or powder form, and medics were told to pour it into any open wound. So it was widely used in World War II. It didn't exist really before World War II in any marketable form, but it became mass-produced, and that's how we got it today. Since then, of course, there have been many different antibiotics that have been discovered, and there have been even more generations of a number of different antibiotics, especially in the penicillin and in the uh, cephalosporin family, the Keflex family, and now come in a bunch of different generations. A different generation drug is... Uh, different generations are different in that they handle different kinds of bacteria, oftentimes more and more different types of bacteria, making them more what they call broad spectrum. Penicillin only handles certain types of bacteria, so it was considered a narrow-spectrum drug when it was originally uh, discovered or originally developed. I think it's important to know this stuff because you just have to understand where we've been to understand where we're going with regards to medicine. I just really feel that it's important. I think it's interesting, too, gosh, between you and me. I love this kind of stuff, uh, hearing these stories, and I hope it's very that... very interesting. And I hope that you enjoyed it, too. Now, I think we have something from the lovely Nurse Amy. <laughs> Are you going to tell us a little bit yes. about a, a medical topic? Awesome. Things that I talk to you every day about. Oh, my gosh. Eating healthy. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that. I'm going to crawl into the corner here. Okay. I'm going to talk a little bit about healthy diets, um, but I need you to understand that my healthy diet may not necessarily be your healthy diet or your neighbor's healthy diet. It does depend on age, what kind of foods you eat. Are you a carnivore or are you strictly a vegan? It depends on, do you have diabetes? Do you have high blood pressure? So these factors go into the actual definition of a healthy diet for you. And I think it's really hard for people to accept that someone else's healthy diet might be perfect for them. So when you read about 
Uh, and when I say diet, I just mean what you're eating. I don't mean a restricted calorie situation where you're trying to lose weight. We're really just talking about your your healthy intake. So consider that when you read everything on the internet that tells you you have this many cups of vegetables and you should have this many portions of meat and this many carbohydrates, that might not be a good diet for your health. So think about this and don't just follow or or completely mimic what is recommended. Again, if you have high blood pressure, you need to look at things that seem natural and healthy like tomatoes and understand that might have a little bit too much sodium for you so that if you have a pasta dish with a lot of tomato sauce on it, you may have exceeded your sodium for the day or gone over because you didn't consider the tomatoes having some sodium and you only counted added salt from other foods. So you really need to think about everything. This makes grocery shopping so difficult, (laughs) I will tell you. Uh, It takes a lot of time to really read labels, to understand what those labels are even saying. Remember some certain things. One, get your fruits and vegetables organic if you can. Uh, Don't wash them, which I think is a very interesting thing. Don't wash them until just before you eat them. Apparently, the water leaches out nutrition from the skins of fruits and vegetables. Now, you do want to wash them because if you haven't, especially if you haven't purchased pesticide or purchased organic, they may have some pesticides on them. So do wash them. Just do that just before you eat them. Uh, In the idea of eating fruits and vegetables, you also want to consider that you should be eating as many raw fruits and vegetables as possible. If you can't get organic and eat raw, frozen is going to be your next level. Of course, if you can get organic frozen, that's great. The organic, unfortunately, adds a little bit of cost, sometimes a lot of cost, to the uh, grocery shopping bill. But in the long run, the more I find out about these horrible things that they put on this food while they're growing it, and I, I think in the future we're going to find more and more problems. Although I will say Monsanto is fighting... The fact that I personally believe, and there are some studies that are not 100%, but are leaning towards Roundup causing cancer. Uh, To me, it seems, you know, pretty logical that something like uh, Monsanto's Roundup would cause cancer, but they're fighting over it. So, you know, I can't say 100% because, again, there are not studies that are completely conclusive Scientists are not 100% convinced. I would say, yes, stay away from it. So try to get organic. If you can't get organic, try to grow a little bit of food for yourself. Sometimes you don't need a whole lot of space to grow organic foods. I'm not shoving this down your throat again. It's, you know, cost, availability. Sometimes you're not in an area where you can get these. And it depends on, on what's available for you to get. Sometimes you can go to farmer's markets, but nobody's growing organic food. I think it's becoming more of a thing, which is really great because, again, reading labels, thinking about what's added to your food, whether it's chemicals mixed in or chemicals that were applied while it was growing, we just need to keep it simple. And I think 
that's that's the best way to think about all your food. What are the simple ingredients? What are these things that I don't understand on this label? If you if there's a bunch of those, maybe you should look at something else. Think about where your meat is raised, what it was grazing on, was it given antibiotics, uh, your chickens, again, if you're talking about eggs. Just, if you can just go back to the way food was grown in the 1800s, simple. They didn't have a lot of these chemicals, these pesticides. They weren't feeding their animals abnormal bagged foods or unusual foods that had to be shoved down their throats. Chickens were not put in tiny little cages with each other. They were free range. The cows were out in the the pastures. The goats were hanging out with the, the cows. I mean, everybody was in their natural habitat. So if you can find food from its natural habitat, it's probably going to have been a healthier animal or a healthier fruit and vegetable. So get rid of the chemicals. Think of simple things. um, And have a variety of meats and fruits and vegetables and carbohydrates. Don't eat the same foods every day. It really does require a lot of thinking to have a variety of foods so that you get all of your nutritional intake. If you're a vegan, you're going to need to take extra B12 because you won't be able to get as much as you need in a daily diet. And we're going to talk a little later, probably in the next show, about different supplements, things that you see on the shelves. My goodness, these areas are growing. The vitamins and supplement area uh, is like swallowing up the pharmacy area. And there's a reason for that. They're starting to look more into uh, these things having really good influences in the way our body works. No pill is going to completely change your body, but what they do is they sort of like the helpers, sort of like having a landscaper or a pool guy or a housekeeper. It helps you keep things going and going more smoothly so that a vitamin D is going to help you absorb the calcium into your bones. So these things help your body work better. It's like antioxidants. If you're sick, they support your immune system so that you actually get better on your own. Now I'm running out of time, but I do want to mention one other (laughs) pet peeve of mine besides Roundup would be high fructose corn syrup. There's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't take this. But one of the biggest is I really believe this is messing up our metabolisms as a country and wherever else they've got it loaded into their foods. We're getting fatter, we're having diabetes, we're having high blood pressure, and we're having cardiovascular issues. So eliminate high fructose corn syrup, and I will talk a little bit more about that next time. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net. Have you experienced the joy that comes with helping the elderly? Well, make an old man, that's me, very happy, and your family medically prepared by getting a copy of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when help is not on the way. It's got the information you'll need to stay healthy in tough times, and best of all, it's written in plain English. Make the Survival Medicine Handbook a part of your library by going to doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. 
Hey, you know, we're good friends with Jack Spierko of the Survival Podcast, maybe the granddaddy of all preparedness podcasts. And we are honored to serve on his expert counsel from a medical standpoint. We get questions from various of his listeners as well as our own, and we answer them on his show and also on this show as well. Here we have a question from someone who wants to know how to make insulin. And I have a story from all the way back before and during World War II that you might just find interesting. Here it is. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Emily, who asks, Hi, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. My question is, how can you make insulin? My partner is a type 1 diabetic. We try to keep three to six months of insulin in the house at all times, but in a real survival situation, this probably wouldn't get us far. I've heard of someone making insulin out of rabbit pancreases in World War II for his wife, but can't find the exact method anywhere. I don't want my husband to die if we get stuck somewhere without medical help for months or years. Any help would be appreciated. Thank you. Emily, you're talking about the amazing case of Ava Saxel, S-A-X-L, a resident of Shanghai, China, and gifted speaker of five languages during the Japanese occupation in World War II. Ava went for a year rationing her supply of commercial insulin, an amazing feat as it's likely that it wasn't refrigerated and the potency must have dropped significantly over time. She and her husband, Victor, a textile engineer, decided that they were not going to let her die and bought a copy of Beckman's Internal Medicine, which contained the original formula for insulin. Now, I don't have that book with me, but a reader of my early work did send me the original lecture in 1925 by Frederick Banting, B-A-N-T-I-N-G, who, along with Charles Best, B-E-S-T, produced insulin for the first time in 1922. You can find the insulin and the whole process in my 2011 article, The Formula for Making Insulin, at doomandbloom.net. Use the search engine on the upper right of the main page. Luckily for the Saxels, a Chinese chemist lent them the use of his laboratory, and they purchased the pancreases, pancreas, pancreases, I don't know, of water buffaloes. Using the formula, a complex series of steps requiring various reagents and equipment, they were able to produce a brown liquid that they tested on rabbits for safety and then on Ava herself. It reportedly kept her from having complications. She was able to make enough, actually, to treat a number of other people until the Jewish ghetto that she lived in was liberated. My first impression is that, in a grid-down situation, we're going to be thrown back medically to a time period maybe before 1922. Banting, the scientist, had access to centrifuges and a number of chemicals that will be certainly inaccessible to us in a collapse. Heck, we might not even be able to produce ice. Searching for ingredients, I could only find Tycrosol, a type of formalin, at dental supply stores. Also, what the heck is Berkfelding? They mentioned Berkfelding as a process that they use to make the insulin. Well, it certainly seems clear to me that you'll need a lot more than your kid's chemistry set to put this stuff together. As for obtaining animal pancreases, there are not going to be many water buffalo around. So where do you get these organs without sacrificing animals that you might need to pull a plow to produce milk, etc.? So these are the challenges. Now, you can accumulate the equipment and chemicals needed, but 
how to get experience making this stuff might not be easy. Still, I have a type 1 diabetic son myself who's nearly blind and has had a kidney transplant, so I am truly invested in finding a solution. If I do, rest assured you'll find it at doomandbloom.net. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our award-winning third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. And make an old man, me, very happy by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, YouTube at DR Bones Nurse Amy Channel, and Facebook on our Doom and Bloom page. And there you have the amazing story of Eva Saxel and her amazing efforts to make insulin in occupied Shanghai in the 1930s. I think that it's amazing that she was able to do what she was able to do. I think that it would be difficult for anybody without a chemist lab somewhere in their future to be able to do it, unfortunately. But she was able to have the luck to know a friendly Chinese chemist who lent her his laboratory and had all apparently all the ingredients. It's just amazing. Here's another one from the expert counsel from Jack Spirko's podcast. This one asks about lipomas, those fatty lumps that people get, probably, gosh, 5% of people, maybe 10% of people have them. What should you do with them? Here's my response. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Kay, who asks, Would you surgically remove a fatty lipoma cyst? I noticed a lump on the back part of my arm back in February. It's a bigger cyst, maybe about the size of a large grape, and deep, but no pain is associated with it. Anyway, I watched it for a few months to see if it would go away or change. It's not gone away, but I do think it's gotten smaller since it's less noticeable when I raise my arm over my head and look in the mirror, which is how I first noted it. I had an ultrasound on it a couple of weeks ago. They say it's just a fatty lipoma cyst. I can either leave it or have it surgically removed. So back to the original question, would you surgically remove a cyst that isn't bothering you? My first thought is to not to have surgery because I really don't want to mess with the hassle, the pain, the meds, the antibiotics, additional appointments, etc. However, I also worry that it's not just a lipoma cyst and it could be something cancerous. Can cancerous cysts be ruled out via ultrasound? Some background info. I'm knocking on the door of 50, happy birthday in advance, okay, and about 40 pounds overweight, have a fairly unremarkable medical history, no meds, diseases, and the only thing I can think of to mention is that I've had small benign cysts removed during my pregnancy and a few benign cysts removed from my scalp. Maybe my body grows cysts instead of moles like everyone else in my family. Well, anyway, appreciate your advice and thanks for all you do. Okay, a lipoma is a benign tumor composed of body fat adipose tissue, and it's the most common benign form of soft tissue tumor. Lipomas are soft to the touch, usually movable, and are generally are painless. One in about a thousand people will get them, not that uncommon really at all from a medical standpoint. The fact that you've had it since at least February and that it hasn't been growing, may even be becoming smaller, suggests that it isn't something that will cause more than cosmetic issues, unless it impinges on a joint, let's say. 
Lipomas that start off benign don't become cancer, although a cancerous tumor known as a liposarcoma can mimic it for a time until it's obvious that it's growing quickly. Tests like ultrasound may or may not show the irregularity of the margins of the tumor, like CAT scans and MRIs, they may be more useful with regards to identification. Indeed, case some people seem to develop these cysts more than other people, although it isn't clear why. I remember removing several on my uncle over the years. For you, honestly, I can't see your lipoma, but generally speaking, I would leave it alone unless it bothers you. Always have your doctor check it out every time that you have an exam. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our award-winning third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Well, that's all the time we have for this week, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton, also known as Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. 